0: glad you're here this morning guest special welcome to you as well and i do want to acknowledge i think she may still be in in the back is shannon uh here with us uh great to see her back give it up for shannon um lost lost her mom uh, a few weeks ago and been battling all kinds of sickness since the middle of december and uh what's up here again this morning playing the guitar So, don't know how she does it all, but great to have uh, Shannon back with us. And I also wanted to acknowledge somebody else this morning. How many of you have been uh, watching Winter Olympics voraciously? Anyone? A few. Some. We have an Olympian among us, and I he I thought I'd have him stand up. Brandon Herring, would you stand up? A special Olympian. And Brandon. Uh, It was either yesterday or the day before, scored 12 points in his basketball game, right? Are you the high scorer? Yes. Awesome, Brandon. Proud of you. Congratulations. Hey, uh, if you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts as we continue our study there, and if you are... New with us, uh, new to us this morning, we are in the middle, or actually the beginning, I shouldn't say the middle, we are in the beginning of a study of this unique book, the book of Acts. It's been called the Acts of the Apostles. Probably should be more appropriately called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And the reason I say that it is a unique book in the Bible, 66 books in the Bible. The reason I say it is a unique book is because if you want to learn about the life of Jesus, you've got four gospels that you can go to, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you've got four witnesses of the life and teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to uh, know a little bit about the churches that were formed after Jesus' ministry, you can read Paul's letters, Paul's... uh, contributed 13 of our new testament letters so you can read his writings to the churches but acts is unique like others uh, some other books in our bible if you want to know how things beginning how things began excuse me uh you would go to the book of genesis right the start of the world how it all began if you want to know how things will end at the end of time where would you go You would go to the book of Revelation. If you want to know what happened in the years immediately following Jesus' resurrection and ascension back to heaven, the one place that you can go is the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us what happened in those uh, early disciples in the beginning, how the church was formed, and, and what it did in those first 30 years of its existence, and it's often said that the Gospels tell us the ministry of Jesus, and then the book of Acts records the history of the church, which is true in a certain sense, but in another sense, it's not completely true, because if you look at the very beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke, who's the author here, uh, writes this, Acts 1.1, 1, 1, he says, "'In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach,' until the day when he was taken up. He's talking about the book of Luke, and he says that book and the other three gospels with it teach about what Jesus began to do and teach, and I've underlined in my Bible, began, because what the book of Acts shows us is what Jesus continued to do after he ascended to the Father, the works of Jesus are not over as he ascends to the Father. In a sense, Jesus is still working on this earth. We see that in the book of Acts because he is continuing those works that he began, but he's continuing through them through his body, the bride of Christ, or what we call the church. He's continuing to do things and to, to teach us things, through the book of Acts, and even on through the works of the church today. So this is a unique part of our scripture as we see what Jesus is doing in this special people that he has called together called the church. So what I want to do this morning is a a little bit of review, and uh, then I really have basically just one point. And so as we look... uh, some of you, I heard a, a sigh as I said that, like, yes, shame, don't say there. One point, but I'll be able to make several points, subpoints out of it, okay? So don't, don't fear. Uh, there are We've already seen uh, that there are two kind of intimidating topics that come to the forefront as we study the books of Acts. And the first one I mentioned uh, week one a few, a few weeks ago is that it, the prominence of the person of the Holy Spirit. We sang about God the Spirit this morning, that wonderful new song that Andrew and and, uh, Shannon led us in. As you're going to read the book of Acts, you cannot escape the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends in his stead to empower the church. And right from the very first verses there, verse 2 and uh, verse 4 and 5 and verse 8 we saw last week. Jesus has said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit among you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell, to live within you. And right from the beginning, that for some of us causes some intimidation because, hey, you're you're okay with God talk. You're okay even perhaps with Jesus talk. But when people start mentioning the Holy Spirit for some reason, you get is this about spirit and holy spirit and does that mean i'm gonna speak in tongues and and why in the world i mean in the old days in the old king james they call him the holy ghost i mean if that doesn't freak you out he's a ghost you know it's spirit so some of us many of us can be intimidated by this third person of the of the trinity the holy spirit but if you are a follower of jesus the holy spirit is inescapable indispensable and essential for being a christian You can no more ignore the Holy Spirit as a Christian than you can ignore the person of Jesus as a Christian. And we see him appearing and and doing things and working powerfully through the church uh, as we go through the book of Acts. And for some of us, we're, we're gonna learn some new things. We're gonna be stretched, we're gonna be challenged about this divine nature who inhabits, who dwells within his people, the Holy Spirit. And if Holy Spirit isn't intimidating or kind of make you nervous or maybe you're not totally comfortable with that, uh, what we talked about last week is perhaps equally, if not more intimidating, and that is in verse 8 that that Jesus says, I'm going to go, I'm going to ascend, but I'm going to leave with you, he's going to come soon, the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And for for us, for many of us, sharing our faith can be this intimidating thing. We don't feel qualified. We don't feel like we have the words or the, or the tools by which to be His witnesses. And last week, we did a little bit of a geography lesson, and I showed you that as Jesus said these words, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. We looked at that on the map. We first of all saw where Jerusalem was, this, this city, this capital city in Israel, and that's where they were, and he's saying, you're going to begin by being my witnesses in Jerusalem. You're going to start where you are and then go everywhere. And that everywhere extends beyond Jerusalem to the region, which is Judea. You see it there in the all caps bold. So Jerusalem, Judea, and then, but then he said, not even just your region, not even just the state of Texas, if you will, but you're going to go all the way to Samaria, to those Okies up there that you have such, you despise so much. They're so backwards. Uh, They're so uh, behind the times. You're going to go to the Samaritans. People that you don't like, and so uh, last week I challenged us to identify our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then the next slide to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's a that's basically the most of the Roman world at that time, all the way over to the left where Paul gets to Rome at the end of the book of Acts. And so last week my takeaway challenge for you was to identify what's your Jerusalem. Where do you need to start? Where is God sending you? Or maybe where has God already sent you? And some of you have the privilege of being God's representative, God's ambassador at the Fortune 500 company that you work in for. Some of you have the privilege of being the ambassador to a street uh, where you are the lone Christian, certainly the lone churchgoer on your street. And God has placed you there, not by accident, but so that you can be his witness. And so last week, I challenged you, what, even though this might be intimidating you, what if you just began by, by praying about the people that live around you, praying for them, walking the dog, walking the kids around the neighborhood and praying for those homes, some of whom you don't even know their names, and say, Lord, would you just get me out of my house and would you give me opportunities to intersect with compassion and begin relationships with these folks that may not know you, so what 's your Jerusalem what's your Judea what's your samaria what's what, what's the people maybe it's uh, folks in your uh, work department or in another department of work that you just don't really like, but God is saying, I want you to go even to the people that you may not feel most comfortable with, and beyond that, I want you to even to be a part of what God what i 'm doing globally around The world. And so every person who's a member, every person who's a believer in Jesus and a member of Centennial Church, you are a minister and a missionary. You just have to figure out what's my circle of influence. What's my sphere? Where has God sent me? And how do I need to begin to cultivate those relationships, pray for those people that just before I go into work, I just take a minute in the car and I just say, God, I'm going in here today please open my eyes to see need around me and see opportunities to to care and to share with the people around me. What would happen if we did that? What would happen if we had 200 missionaries of Centennial Church being intentional in the circles of influence that they've been given Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? If we just prayed that prayer, God, use me In this place, use me in my spheres. How many of you have had that experience, like I have, where uh, you're going car shopping, or perhaps you you purchased a car recently, and and all of a sudden, have you decided, hey, we, we bought this Honda Pilot, and all of a sudden, everywhere you drive, you see Honda Pilots? Whereas before, a week or two weeks before, you, you had no idea about this car, this brand or, or whatever, this type of car. It's not a brand of car. Excuse me. I'm really a car guy. You can tell. Uh, but you had never seen this car before, and now you see it everywhere. Why? Because you've entered this world, and now you have eyes to see something that you didn't before. I want to challenge you that that this same kind of thing happens if we just pray, Lord, use me. If you just sit in your car before you get out of of your car at work and just say, God, open my eyes that I might see Honda Pilots, if you will. But not Honda Pilots' needs and people that I can care for, someone that I can pray with today and say, that must be hard. Can I just pray for you? And just pray for them right then that God would so want to answer that prayer to open your eyes to just see people right in your path if we were looking for them. That's what God has called us to do. Not just the professionals, not just the professional missionaries, pastors, but every single one of us. I love this quote by a lady named Rebecca Pippert. Rebecca Pippert says this, "'The Word became flesh.'" God did not send a telegram or shower evangelistic Bible study books from heaven or drop a million bumper stickers from the sky saying, Smile, Jesus loves you. He sent a man, his son, Jesus Christ. His strategy to communicate the message, his strategy has not changed. He still sends men and women before he sends tracks and techniques to change the world. You may think his strategy is risky, but that's God's problem, not yours. He's not dropping bumper stickers. He's not starting an email campaign. He's looking at us and saying, you will be my witnesses right where you are and beyond in the places of influence that you have. That's the charge he gave those first followers and that's the charge that he gives us. So what do they do next? What do they do next? Well, we see it here in our passage today. So join me. Let's let's actually begin uh, by uh, looking at verse ten and following Acts one. Beginning of verse ten, we'll read through fourteen. Okay, pick up where we left off last week. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven?" This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, bartholomew that's a tough one, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Pray with me. Father God, we believe this is your word. We believe you have given it to us for our edification, for our strengthening, for our empowerment, and we ask Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds, soften our hearts, and use your word in power in our lives. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of our need for you, our need for the presence and power of God in our lives, that we would be people uh, committed to prayer as these first disciples were. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, you see that as Jesus ascends to the Father, they're kind of stuck and they're looking up in the clouds, and the angels tell them, Hey, don't keep looking up in the sky. Uh, He's going to come back. That's the promise. And Jesus had promised them that himself in John chapter 14. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'll come back. So, that's that great promise of the return of Jesus. And so, what do they do? After they get this great commission, what do they do? Just start spreading the news, right? Just going to everyone they see and, and, and telling them about this wonderful truth that Jesus is, is the God-man, the king, and that, they sh- that all people should worship him and trust him as savior. No, they don't do that. They actually take this time of waiting in obedience to what Jesus told them. They wait for 10 days, and what they do in that upper room is that they gather and pray. Verse 14, again, says all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Jesus has said, wait, you are going to be my witnesses, but you need something to be my witnesses. And that is me. That's my power, the power of the Holy Spirit. So rather than get up and start spreading the news, they gathered together in prayer. And it says here that they were devoted to prayer. So I said there's one point, and that one point is prayer, but I was able to find three subpoints. So here they are, okay? The prayer was corporate, united, and committed. The prayer was corporate, united, and committed. First of all, corporate. You see there it says that they all, all these gathered. And beyond the 12 disciples, we find out in the in the coming verses that uh, around 120 people gathered. So there, were, there was this, these first followers that gathered together and they say, we need to wait on the Holy Spirit and we need to be about prayer. And they were united in this, uh, in this prayer. It says that they were uh, with, of one accord. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were united in this prayer. Now the question becomes, were they united because of their task or were they united because they were praying together? And I think the answer is probably a little bit of both. They were united because of this mission that they'd been given, but the prayer also was a a form that God was using to unite them together. As they prayed, they were becoming more united. And and thirdly, you see there that they were committed, and the word there, devoting themselves to prayer. Or some of your translations might say they were continually or constantly in prayer. That's the word that is used uh, later in chapter 2, verse 42, when it describes what the, uh, the first believers at Pentecost, after the, the sermon that, that Peter preaches at Pentecost, it says, Acts two forty-two. they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayers. They were not just dabbling in prayer, they were devoted to prayer. And you see this theme of prayer and this need for prayer all throughout the book of Acts. That they were corporate, they were unified, and they were committed in prayer. I mentioned Acts two forty two. Also Acts four, it says they prayed, and the place in which they they were gathered together was shaken as they prayed. Acts chapter six, as they uh, appoint these new leaders. It says they needed these leaders so that the the apostles and the elders there could devote themselves to prayer. And so they selected these deacons and they set them apart. And it says they prayed for them and laid hands on them. In Acts chapter 12, verse, verse 12, it says, Many were gathered together and were praying. As the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem and Judea, beginning in Acts 13, which we'll see in a few months. Uh, Acts 13:3 says after fasting and praying they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off on this missionary journey. Acts chapter 14 verse 23 it says elders were appointed in every church with prayer and fasting. Backing up a little bit Acts chapter 12 Peter was in prison and it says but but earnest prayer for him was made by the church. He's in prison, but his brothers and sisters are in earnest prayer for him. Acts chapter 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas are in prison. But as they're in prison, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So if you're not uh, intimidated uh, or... Nervous or unsure about the Holy Spirit, or if you're not intimidated or unsure about this idea that, hey, I'm supposed to be a witness for Jesus, all of us could probably use some growth or probably a little intimidated when it comes to prayer. There's an author, an old author by the name of Oswald Sanders, who said, if you, if you wish to, to make anyone cower, ask him or her about their prayer life. Because we all feel some conviction about our prayer our lack of prayer, perhaps. But this is not just something they're dabbling in. This is something that they are devoted to. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, Paul writes this in his words, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Have I made my one point? Pray. And as I was studying this week, the word that kept coming into my mind as I thought about prayer was this idea of begging. Begging. Who begs? Who's a beggar? Someone who's poor? Someone who's needy? Someone who is out of options? And prayer... Is people like you and me, spiritual beggars who are crying out to God, say, God, I need you. God, I need your power. I need your presence. I just don't have what it takes. God, be with me. Move in me. Work in me. Work through me. Work through our church. God, be powerful. Come. Meet with us. Dwell among us. I saw it. Interview with Billy Graham one time, when he was asked if you could if you could do anything differently in your ministry in your life than you've done, what would you change? And he said, "I would travel less and I would pray more. I would travel less and I would pray more." Oh, Billy, you you kind of got this thing down. You're pretty good at this. People like to listen to you. You draw crowds. No, I am totally weak apart from the power of God. Another saint of old name, Charles Spurgeon, wrote this. Spurgeon says, The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting, a graceometer, and from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray, and if He be there not, one of the first tokens of His absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Andrew Bonar. God likes to see his people shut up to this, that there is no hope but in prayer. Herein lies the the church's power against the world. If you don't take it from those guys, take it from Jesus himself in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit apart from me you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Now oh, you preachers, just every every week it's a different text and a different sermon, so you get excited about just this one thing, and today it's prayer. No. And I mean that about today, and I mean that about last week. We're to be witnesses, we're to be missionaries. But you cannot read your Bible, you cannot read the story of Acts, the history of the church without saying people that that knew God and people that God moved through were people of prayer. And so I'm not just saying that that prayer is is this, this nice little thing that we need to give lip service to at the beginning of our meetings or our community groups or our Bible studies or something, but it is center. It is central. And so I'm more convinced than ever that we need to be a praying church. People that are beggars, that are desperately crying out, spiritually bankrupt. God, come and meet us. Because we can have some good music. We can have great stuff for our kids and our children. And the guy up here can put some words together and maybe even inspire us every once in a while. But we can do nothing apart from God and apart from his power through prayer. And I don't want us just to have good programs and neat stuff going on in a a church that looks nice to suburban America. I want God to move in and through us. And the only way that's gonna happen is when we fall on our knees and say, God, we need you. We've got nothing apart from you moving within us. And I think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are, you, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And I think, you know what bothers us about that? Is that we're not poor. We're kind of middle class. We're middle class in spirit. Like, yeah, we're gonna have trouble like affording college for the kids and stuff, but we're basically middle class, spiritually and materially. And what happens is middle class people are just not that desperate. And so pray with me, Father God, make us poor in spirit, knowing that we can do nothing in our marriage, in our neighborhoods. We can do nothing to help our children apart from your grace and your power through prayer. Prayer is not an accessory. Prayer is not an add-on. It is at the very center of who we are called to be and what we are called to be about. And I'm not just talking about praying, you know, calling out for Aunt Sally's roommate's dog. I'm talking about asking God, God, you move here. We want you. Not just our list of medical needs, those important as those may be, but God, we need you to transform our hearts, to transform our church, to transform our community. Holy Spirit, come and move. Move in power. So the message this morning and the idea for us as people and as Centennial Church is to pray. Have I made that point? To pray desperately as beggars. And if you don't feel that need this morning, if that's just not where you are in your spirit, just pray, God, show me my need. Be careful praying that prayer. God, move in my heart. Show me my desperate need. Help me want to want to pray. So we have this prayer gathering every Thursday night at 7 p.m. And we have a special prayer gathering tonight at 5 p.m. And we've been planning for this because we knew this passage was coming and we knew we needed to talk about this. And so I'm asking you to gather with us in prayer tonight all of you. And our teenagers are going to be here to watch the kids if that's, a, if that's an obstacle. But we want you to gather and pray and we want, to, we want to cry out to God and ask God to move powerfully in our nation. Ask God to move powerfully among us. Ask God to bring about a historic revival in this nation and in this part of the country. So come and pray with us. And some of you are thinking, I don't know how to do that. That's just, I don't know. Well, come and learn. And just just be there and be ready to just pray one sentence, just just one sentence that says something of your heart for God or God, give me a heart for you. But come and learn. It's not an accessory. It's not an add-on. We pray every week, Thursdays at 7 o'clock, and we want to gather our church for a special time of prayer tonight right in here in this auditorium. And now I want to talk to all of our community group leaders, all of our Bible study leaders, everybody, every gathering that we have at Centennial Church, that prayer not just be something to start the meeting or end the meeting, but that we really take focused time an intentional, passionate time to ask God to move among us and give us power like he did that early church. And not only that we that we gather corporately and in, in corporate prayer, which is the example we have here in Acts one fourteen, but we also pray personally. And this has been the conviction on my heart to be more prayerful. And so when, what do we need to do about that? Well, some of us may need to like set an alarm, some reminders on our phone. Stop right here during the lunch hour. Start right, stop right here late in the evening and say some prayers or throughout the day, however you want to do it. Many of us will need to pray with someone so that we can learn how to pray or we can pay attention and not drift off and have our thoughts uh, just, just, just go off into wherever land. Some of you need prayer just this morning, and you want someone to pray for you. I want to encourage you, as we come to communion in a few minutes, I want to, there's going to be a few of us in the back in front of the sound booth there. We don't have the candles out today, but we'll be back there. If you just need prayer, want to pray with someone, come back and pray with us. For some of you, you may, you may need to start a prayer journal so that you can, again, keep your attention focused and write your prayers down in that journal. That's been helpful for me. Some of you, you might want to start by reading the Psalms. These are the prayers that are included, songs and prayers that are included within our Bible that prime the pump, so to speak, or give you words to pray when you just don't have the words to pray. And sometimes that's where we are. We're just so desperate, we don't even have the words. But the Holy Spirit can use those Psalms and those prayers that are contained within the Scriptures to give us fodder for prayer and to help us pray ourselves. I have a book that I've had for 15 years that I use sometimes in the morning. It's called A Diary of Private Prayer by a guy named John Bailey. And Man, he can put some words to the feelings of your hearts. John Bailey, A Diary of Private Prayer. There's a morning prayer and an evening prayer. Some of you don't like praying other people's prayers. That's fine. Find something and do it. I, I I. gain much from uh, humbly listening to the prayers of others and being guided like that. The point is not all the technique and how and when and all this, that stuff. The point is pray. Do it. It's not an add-on. It's an essential. It's what It's how God chooses to move among his people. And so even if you're uncomfortable with it, I invite you To pray with us tonight. I invite you to, to commit and take baby steps to become a person more prayerful. You don't have to pray like a preacher. In fact, it's best if you probably don't just to pray like a child because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. He said, begin father, daddy, like a child. We have a little one in our home who in the storms and all of that, she often comes into our bed in the middle of the night because she's scared and she wants to be with mommy and daddy. And God, our father, is our daddy. And he's the daddy that never sleeps and wants to protect and provide for his children. And to empower them through his spirit. And so he invites us in our fear and in our inability, even in our, our joy, the uncertainty, to climb up into his lap, so to speak, and pour our hearts out and be safe with him. I love the way, I love the way Tim Keller talks about it. He says, God, God is our king. God is our king who has invited us to pray to him. And there's, there, the, the only person that can wake a king in the middle of the night is a child who needs a cup of water. We have that kind of access to God. To wake the king, though he never sleeps, to wake the king in the middle of the night as his children. He says, cry out to me, Abba, Father, Let me give you my Holy Spirit. Let me empower you. Let me protect you. Let me draw close to you. And we do that primarily through prayer. So pray with me. Oh God, we come to you and... uh, We fail to come to you often because we're middle class and we kind of have a lot going for us and we're pretty comfortable. But in our most honest moments, we know how out of control and poor and desperate we are. Whether it's with our kids or whether it's in our work or in our marriage, just the deep, scars or guilt or shame that we carry with us. So God, as we come poor in spirit, help us to be poor in spirit as we come. Would you empower us by your spirit? That the poor and powerless would be spirit-filled and empowered by you. God, we desire not just pretty church or a nice one-hour gathering every week but we desire to meet you, to meet with you, to experience you, to have you touch our hearts, and to have you move in and through us. For the glory and honor of Jesus, let it be, God. Let it be.